Well, you can almost feel it in the air, can't you? Something has changed in our society, many societies around the world that has caught Christians off guard. And as I think about it, and the, one of the ways I could illustrate that for you this morning, I want to make reference to a show that my wife and I watched a few years ago, ago called The Wilds. And I was intrigued by this show because it is kind of a modern-day retelling of The Lord of the Flies, except for this time it's an island full of girls who find themselves um, surviving after a plane crash. And I was intrigued enough to listen in and see what they were saying about the human condition and how this would play out. And there's one part where these girls, or these young ladies, are, are sitting around on the beach just passing time, waiting for for someone to come and rescue them. And one of the women starts making a lewd gesture. And then there's one Christian on this island among these group of ladies named Shelby, who is a Christian. And she objects and asks this woman to stop. And they all kind of dogpile on her and, and reject her and, and shout her down. And she says this, what, am I not allowed to have my own beliefs? And one of the other women responded by saying, not those ones. And I thought as I heard that, that perfectly captures some of the shift that I sense, and maybe you sense, in our society, where once we could speak freely about what we thought and believed, but now we think twice sometimes before opening our mouth in certain contexts, not sure if it's appropriate or what kind of pushback we might get. Alistair Begg, a minister and writer, says this, For us in the English-speaking West, this world has tended to feel very much like home and our treasures have been right before our eyes. Perhaps it's only in the last few years in the United States that we have finally faced what the Bible says is true. In this world, we really are sojourners and exiles. That reality has been clouded and obscured by the size and legal protection of the church in most of the Western world. But this world is not actually our home. Christians are increasingly going to be seen as different and not in a good way. We are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. The next decades will bring, will not bring apathy to the gospel, but antagonism. And that's okay. After all, that has been the reality for most of God's people through most of history. In this sense, as we move ahead in time, we're going back, back to the world of the first century church. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to say that we in this nation are facing unprecedented persecution that no one around the world has ever experienced. I and mean, we have it very easy compared to so many people. But nevertheless, there are winds of change stirring. And I want us to think through how we should, how we should be in this moment, those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Alistair Begg says here, as we move forward, we're actually moving back towards the context and the world of the first century church. And of course, in that first century church, Christians had to pay dearly for following the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been looking at this amazing letter, Philippians, that the Apostle Paul wrote, having now spent about four years in prison, two years in Caesarea and now two years in Rome, as he's awaiting his trial before Nero. And he doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He thinks he might be executed, but he really thinks there's probably a good chance that he's going to get out because he believes he's innocent of the charges that have been um, uh, put, placed against him. And so... The, this Philippian church, some 800 miles away, that Paul helped start, has heard that Paul is in prison in Rome, so they sent um, one of their friends, Epaphroditus, and some money to help Paul in this situation. And so he writes back to them to give them an update on how he is doing. And as he thinks about what might happen, and if he has to give his life, he says this, we looked at this last week, for me to live is Christ, 
And to die is gain. To depart and to be with Christ is better by far. Paul basically says, I'm doing okay. If I'm, if I'm released, I get to live for Christ, I get to talk about Christ. And if I'm executed, I get to die for Christ and be with him. So I'm okay here. And what he does now is he makes a shift from talking about himself to talking about the very real situation that these Philippian believers are facing as they live in the midst of a Roman colony. And so as we get ready to unpack what Paul says in this letter, I want us to ask the question, what if what I believe about Jesus costs me everything? It's likely not to. But what if what I believe, what you believe, ends up costing us everything? We really ought to think about this before the time would actually come. And thinking about that helps us to live back from that moment into the present moment as we seek to live and follow Jesus in this very time that he's given to us. And so as we get ready to dive into this, I just simply want to call our study today, Living a Life Worthy of the Gospel. And I want to ask that you would pray with me and ask the Lord to be the one who teaches us this day as we unpack his holy word. Let's pray. Lord, if we're honest, we can sense the winds of change in our own culture. We're not being outright persecuted. We don't have to worry about giving our lives. Really, the most that we have to worry about is the frown of others or someone saying something bad or thinking worse of us. Maybe sometimes we might get in trouble at work, but we don't face what other believers around this world are facing, and many believers throughout time have faced. Nevertheless, Lord, that's not an excuse for us not to think about our commitment to Christ and what it means for us to live now. So as we listen in, and as it were, eavesdrop in this letter that Paul is writing to the Philippians to encourage them to stand firm in the faith. Would you help us understand what is being said here so that we can apply it to our lives and seek to live for you no matter what the cost? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, no matter what happens to me, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Someone said to me this last week, this is one of their favorite verses in the book of Philippians because it kind of zeroes in really a goal and a standard for us. And here Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, if you've studied some of Paul's letters or read through them, you will know that oftentimes he speaks about the Christian's walk before the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they've received. For example, let me just give you a few verses that intimate this. Ephesians chapter 4, another letter he has written from prison. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. And of course, to the Thessalonians, he writes, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. The Christian life, in many ways, can be de described as a walk. And so sometimes you might hear Christians ask one another, how's your walk with the Lord going? And that's the way Paul often describes it. But notice here in Colossians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 1, he puts it a little bit differently. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And what's interesting about this word is that in the original language, it has the word citizen in its core. I might translate it something like this. Let your public life as a citizen, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. In other words, Paul expects 
these Philippian followers of Jesus are living their life and not, let, not letting their uh, faith be hidden. It affects the way that they live. Dennis Johnson in his commentary helps us to understand the impact of, of what Paul is getting at here. He says, Paul bypasses the walking metaphor that he uses so often to portray the pattern of behavior that befits our faith, replacing walk with a citizen-laden verb, which means to maintain a standard of conduct befitting a citizen, to behave in a way that enhances the reputation of one's city. The ISV translation gets at it like this. The only thing that matters is that you continue to live as a good citizen, as good citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of the Messiah. Now, for us to understand this and why Paul is even using a word like this, we need to think about that context that Paul is writing to. These Christians living in the middle of a Roman colony where citizenship meant everything. Not everyone in the Roman Empire had Roman citizenship. This was something that was privileged. And the city of Philippi, Caesar Augustus conferred upon each uh, resident living there the status of a Roman citizen, which meant when you were to visit Philippi, it would feel very much like Rome. They dressed like Romans, they spoke like Romans, they ate like Romans, the architecture even reflected the city of Rome. But it was also a hotbed of patriotism. Everyone there loved the empire, and especially its eternal city of Rome. And it was rife with worship, not only of the empire, but also of the emperor. And so let me ask you this question. In Philippi, also known as Little Rome, what was your manner of life, your citizenship, supposed to be worthy of? It's supposed to be worthy of Rome, right? <laughs> Residents of the Roman colony of Philippi were to live out their citizenship in a manner worthy of the eternal city of Rome. Let's just say, for example, in order to be a resident of Bryan College Station. It was expected that you would dress in maroon and white. You would make your, your weekly pilgrimage to one of the athletic games or performances at one of the facilities. And let's just say that you're expected to, to burn incense before a statue of the head football coach. <laughs> that's a little bit ridiculous to think about. But that's not unlike what it was expected of the citizens of Rome. They were to dress like Romans, and they were to worship like Romans. And so Paul, in the midst of this very um, difficult place to live, where people were worshiping the Caesars as the sons of God, as the king of kings and lords of lords, as the, as the saviors of the world, you see how it would be difficult if your manner of life in that city was to go around and saying, I actually think Jesus is the savior of the world. I actually think he's the king of kings and lord of lords. I actually think Jesus is the true son of God. You see how that might be a little bit difficult to live as a citizen? But nevertheless, that's what he's getting at here. Let your public life as a citizen be worthy, not simply of Rome, but of Christ, the gospel of Christ. As I was studying this, I wondered if, if he's thinking of something beyond just their citizenship in Rome. Because later on in this book, he's going to say this. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I wondered if, if when they went back and they reread this letter, and they heard him say, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ, they asked the question, does he mean our citizenship in Rome? Or does he mean our citizenship in heaven? 
Paul would probably say, yeah, I mean both. <laughs> Nevertheless, he wants their manner of life, their citizenship to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What do you think about that phrase, the go- worthy of the gospel of Christ? I, I think as I was preparing this, as some people would say, hey, I'm already aware of how much my life falls short in this area. How can I ever live a life worthy of the gospel? I don't know about you, but I'm aware of those ways in which my life falls short over and over again of the way I want to live for Christ. But here's an important point for us to remember. The same grace of Jesus that forgives us is also the same grace of Jesus that empowers us to live for him. It's not so much the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life that Paul is aiming for here. He wants their lives to reflect, to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. One second here. I'm not sure what happened there with those extra slides in there. Let me just bring us back to attention here. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his book, The Kingdom New Testament, um, this is really his translation of the New Testament, captures it like this. He says, the one thing I would stress is this, your public life must match up to the gospel of the king. That's what he wants those Philippians to do. And if Paul was speaking to us, he would want the same for us. Our public life, the way we live in our work, the way we are with our families, the way we are in the clubs that we're part of, all of it to be worthy of the gospel of the king. And the reason he wants that is so that, he says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. On the screen, I've highlighted a couple terms for us, standing firm and striving side by side. And since Philippi was home to many active and retired military personnel, the precise phrases standing firm and striving side by side would have signified courage and unity to them. And so when Paul takes that kind of language and puts it in their defense of the gospel, it takes on drastic uh, heightened meaning. He says here, I want you to be standing firm in one spirit. I think of soldiers holding the line, standing firm for the cause they're a part of. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he says, I want you to do it in one spirit. My translation of spirit here is, has a, has a lowercase s, but I wonder if it might be an uppercase s. Standing firm in one spirit, the spirit that God has given us, the spirit that creates the church, the spirit that energizes it for worship and for mission. That might be the case. And if that's the case, it would be something like this. I want you to be holding the line in the power of the spirit. But he also says, with one mind, I want you to be striving side by side. That word striving has a, at its heart this word athletics, and it was used originally to describe those in the military who are training. And even today in track and field, for example, there's, there's still things like the javelin throw and the disc throw and, and some other shot put and things like that that originally made their origin back to the way um, soldiers trained for the military. And of course, in the Olympics, that fleshes itself out there. So he wants them to, to strive, to, 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 to be fully engaged in the effort of the faith of the gospel. This is the the treasure that's been given to them. They've been privileged to be able to hear the good news of Jesus, to be able to believe in it, and now he says, I want you to strive for it. It's this little book towards the end of the New Testament called Jude, and here Jude writes to some Christians living in the Roman Empire, and he says these things. 
Beloved, while I, was making, uh, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. You see here, the leaders of the church were encouraging Christians to contend for their faith, to strive, to strive side by side for the, for the faith of the gospel. And as we look back at Philippians chapter 1, Paul wants them to do this with a particular thought, to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. I wonder if that's easier said than done in some ways, right? It sounds good, but when it comes to it, how many of us are quickly frightened? What's interesting is Paul uses a word that was commonly used to describe a herd of frightened horses stampeding in a panic. He's telling them to hold the line. Don't be frightened like horses stampeding in a panic. Hold your ground. Stand. Strive for the gospel. He says, this is a clear sign to them. Let me back up. Verse 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I'm often puzzled about this phrase. How is that a sign to them of their destruction and a sign of their salvation? And as I was thinking about what that could mean, I thought back to the time when Jesus stood before Pilate. Do you remember when they had that confrontation and Pilate was trying to get Jesus to speak, to, to fall for the bait he's given him? And he said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I don't know how Pilate said this, and the gospel writers don't tell us the mood or the reaction, but imagine Pilate being really frustrated, maybe even yelling this in the face of Jesus. I don't know. But Jesus responded coolly by saying, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. See, in that moment, all the threats of the power of the Roman Empire had no effect on Jesus. He stood firm. I think, I wonder... If in that moment, Pilate just thought, I've never seen anyone stand like that against me. He may have thought he was off his rocker. He may have thought he was crazy. He certainly thought Jesus wasn't guilty of what they charged. But nevertheless, there was a power at work in Jesus that did not falter before the power of the Roman Empire. Do you know the story of Polycarp? He was one of the early disciples of Jesus. He lived in the latter half of the first century, the early to mid part of the second century. He became a follower of Jesus and became a bishop or an elder of the town called Smyrna. And as the tides of change were working in their own society, persecution was heating up against Christians and they wanted to go after the head of the church. And so the governor sent soldiers to find Polycarp. And Polycarp knew <laughs> this day was coming. And so when the soldiers arrived at this door, it said that he welcomed them as old friends and asked that they be served some food and some water. They told him why they were there, and he asked simply if he could just have an hour to pray. And so he knelt and prayed. And as they prayed, the soldiers thought, this man has done nothing wrong. He, he's a good man. And they allowed him to keep praying for two hours. And then finally they said, it's time to go. And so they marched him off to the arena where he was to stand before the governor one last time with the opportunity to recant. And on his way out there, one of the magistrates came out in his chariot and called Polycarp up to him. He's an elderly man now. And begs him to just offer a sacrifice to the gods of Rome 
and they'll be, he'll be released. And he said to this, I'm sorry, this is what the, the governor said to him, take the oath and I will let you go, just revile Christ. That's all you have to do. Just take the oath. Take the, take the oath to Rome. Take the oath to the emperor. That's all. Just say he's supreme, not Jesus. And I will let you go. Revile Christ. And this is what he said in response. Four score and six years have I served him, and he has never done me harm. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Can you imagine this old, frail man before the power of the Roman authorities, and they tell him to revile Christ. He's like, how can I? Jesus has never done anything to harm me. I'm not going to blaspheme my king. And then he prayed out loud, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you, with him, through the Holy Spirit, be glory both now and forever. Amen. That was his last stand. And as history tells us, they piled the logs around his feet and lit him on fire, and he died. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. So when Paul says to the Philippians, do not be frightened by anything in your opponents, we need to hear him saying, don't let anyone intimidate you for your faith. Stand firm. Strive side by side. And then he gives a reason further for why they should do it. For it has been granted to you, he says. This word granted means it's been graciously gifted to you. I don't know about you, but I like gifts. <laughs> I think all of us like gifts. And as I was thinking about the time when I first read this in Philippians as a younger man than I am right now, I read this, and I'm like, okay, it's been, this, this has been granted to us. We've, we've been given some gifts. And my thought process went something like what this young lady says here. <laughs> yes, please, I love gifts. So Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Oh, I like that. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I've been given the grace to believe in Jesus. Like Lydia, my heart's been opened to receive the gospel. It's by grace that I've been saved, through faith, not myself, but this gift of God. This, this is amazing. I love this gift. What else, Paul? It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. My thought process went something like this. Wait, what? What did he just say? What did he just say was a gift that has been given Let's look and see what that said there. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Yep, that's what it said. I don't know about you, but 
it kind of hits me a little bit wonky. I love the fact that I've been given the gift to believe in Jesus. What a gracious gift. But the gift to suffer for him? I, I don't think about that like a gift, do you? Or maybe it's a, it's a gift when I get out of suffering. I don't have to take the frowns of people who look upon me because of what I believe. That's only because my natural disposition, and probably yours as well, is to see the world in a certain way. To think that what happens because I stand up for Jesus and what people do in response to that are ultimately what defines me. Think about what Peter wrote as he, as he wrote to, to Christians who had fleed persecution in Jerusalem and are now scattered throughout Asia Minor. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. <laughs> he could say, when you live your public life, don't let it be because your suffering comes from these things. <laughs> Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. How can Peter say that? To people who are experiencing real persecution, who had to leave their homes and their jobs to try to find safety. How can he say to them, if anyone suffers, let him praise the Lord? That's because he's rooted in the words of Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't you? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See what Jesus is saying here? When you suffer for my name, when people look at you and think less of you because you're a follower of Jesus, when they slander you, when it begins to cost you something, maybe that promotion or, or maybe your job or maybe the loss of some friends, Jesus says, you are blessed. Jesus, how is it the case that I'm blessed? It seems like my world's coming apart. He says, you're blessed and I want you to rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. So the reasoning goes like this. So if I'm insulted or thought less of because I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm actually blessed and will be rewarded by my Savior? Yes, that's the case. That's part of why Paul says you need to think about your faith, not only in terms of it being a gift of God, but, but when it costs you something, as that being a gift of God as well. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. How does the Philippians see Paul engaged in a conflict? Well, remember when he planted that church in Philippi, he started sharing the gospel with people. There was a riot in the city, and they came and took him and his friend Silas, and they stripped them and beat them with rods. And afterwards, they threw him in prison, took him to the inner prison, the soldier there, put their feet in shackles. Are we to get from verse 30 here that some of the Philippians now are even facing the very same thing that happened to Paul? Maybe. He says, it's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let me summarize our message for us so far, my friends. <clears throat> it might go something like this. Jesus' royalty deserves our loyalty no matter what. <clears throat> 
If Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, if he truly is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, his royalty deserves our loyalty, no matter what the cost. After all, think about the cost to Jesus to redeem you, to bring you into his family, to forgive you of your sins, to welcome you eternally into his kingdom, to confer upon you the status of a royal son and a royal daughter. As Paul said, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. (laughs) And if Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, the response in our hearts should well up. I love him and want to give myself for him. Of course, Jesus died for our sins. We don't have to die for the sins of Jesus. That's not in question. He had no sins. He's perfect. But would our love for Jesus be faithful to the end, even if we had to give ourselves for him? It's a good question to wrestle with, isn't it? So here's your assignment, my friends. I'm going to lift a phrase from the Apostle Peter. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. The Philippians did not stand a chance in the face of persecution and the prospect of dying for their faith. And Paul would not have a chance to stand strong in his faith if it were not the case that both of them had set apart Christ as Lord. The one who said, blessed are you if you're persecuted for my sake. This same Lord is the one who not only loved us and gave himself for us, but rose again from the dead and has conquered death. So even if we pay the ultimate price, there's nothing more they can do to us, right? There's nothing more they can do to us. Why? Because our life is hidden in Christ. And if we're executed like the Apostle Paul was, we depart and we're with Christ. And that is better by far. So my friends, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. This needs to be a daily thing. This should be the disposition of our our waking moments when we realize another day has been gifted to us, an opportunity to live for Christ, to love for Christ. And it's been my habit over the last several years to begin my day by acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ and telling him that I'm giving him my loyalty. I will live this day for him, no matter what happens. And that's a practice I would commend for you, my friends. <laughs> Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is not just a one-and-done kind of thing. We need to do this every day, and maybe even sometimes hourly. Yes, Jesus is your Savior, but he's also your Lord. Do you recognize him as such, and do you give your life and allegiance to him? If you think of that word allegiance, it's a word that describes loyalty, devotion, dedication, faithfulness. If you're allegiant to Texas A&M, even through uh, some not-so-good days in sports, you stick with them, right? You're loyal, you're devoted, you're dedicated, you're faithful. You hope for better days, right? (laughs) That same kind of mentality, that same kind of allegiance ought to be given to Jesus, who never lets us down, (laughs) who never fails us, who always shows up for us. And so, my friends, I want you to begin to think of your faith, not just simply as your trust in Jesus, it is that. But it's a trust that is allegiant to him. That is loyal, devoted, dedicated, faithful. Because Jesus is royalty, 
He deserves our loyalty no matter what. So my friends, let's count it our greatest honor to live for and to suffer for Jesus and if necessary, to die for Jesus. Do you have that kind of mentality? This is what the gospel does in people is it creates this kind of mentality. Christ lived for me, therefore I will live for him. Christ died for me, and if necessary, I will die for him. Jesus' loyalty deserves our royalty, no matter what the cost. So my friends, let's count it our greatest honor to live for and to suffer for Jesus, and if necessary, to die for him. Let me finish just with this one reference to the book of Revelation. Here we get um, kind of a pull back of the, of the curtains, looking into heaven, and here the Apostle Paul says, I'm sorry, the Apostle John says this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. And then we're told this, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Here the Apostle John, living in that first century, where already Christians are being killed for Jesus, has this vision of heaven given to him by the Lord. And there he sees Christians who have triumphed over the evil one and the worst this world can throw at them, which is death for Christ. And they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and because they had in them an impulse that they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink back from death when it visited them because of Jesus. My friends, may that same determination, may that same kind of allegiance, may that same kind of loyalty be found in you and be found in me. Here's the key thought. When we surrender our lives to Christ, we may be given the privilege of surrendering our lives for Christ. Part of finding joy right where you are is living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus right where you are. So my friends, may you live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus because Jesus' royalty deserves our loyalty no matter what.